All right. Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> Happily, we've solved the uh, technological problems. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this afternoon's event. My name is Craig Calhoun. I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And it's my great honor to welcome Mr. Zhu Min to the LSE today to deliver his lecture entitled The Future of Asian Financial Markets in a Changing World. As I'm sure you are all aware, Zhu Min was that the deputy is the deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund and was previously the deputy governor of the People's Bank of China from 2009 through 2010, where he was responsible for international affairs, policy research, and credit information. And indeed, the LSE is pleased that the People's Bank of China is one of its partners and collaborators um, on important research and training. Mr. Zhu also worked at the World Bank and taught economics at Johns Hopkins University and Fudan University, our partner in Shanghai. You see many connections here. He has published extensively on a wide range of macroeconomic management, financial regulation and supervision, and financial market issues. Now, for those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSEIMF. As usual, after the lecture, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to Mr. Zhu. But before this, let me invite our own Lord Nicholas Stern to make some introductory remarks as an old friend of Zhu Min and a key figure at the LSE in these areas of public economics. Nick. Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig, and, and thank you all very much for coming. It's uh, a special pleasure for me to make uh, introductory remarks um, for Zhu Min because um, Min is a, a very old friend. Uh, we've discussed all sorts of things, including economics and the future of uh, China's reforms over very many years. Um, he is a very distinguished um, economist. He's studied uh, economics in uh, Fudan, in Johns Hopkins, uh, MPA, Woodrow Wilson School, and has taught at some of the leading universities of the world, uh, including um, in the United States at Johns Hopkins and, again, at his own Fudan University. So Zhumin is a scholar. He's also a banker. Uh, he's had long experience in the uh, Bank of China uh, in very senior leading positions. He's also a public servant in his own country uh, as uh, Deputy Governor of the People's Bank of China and now as an international public servant. So it's been a wonderful career and uh, he can't say this but uh, he is a very wise and experienced man now as well as a uh, fine economist. Now we all know that uh, China has now um, uh, become uh, a huge power, a power that is changing the world. It's no longer the case that the world, react, the world is a place into which can, China can make its foray and leave the world unchanged. Now what China does changes everything. And that is a responsibility which those in China have recognized long ago and are taking it very seriously and thinking about it very seriously. And, and uh, Min is one of the people who has led those thoughts. Now, people love numbers on China. Uh, let me give you the numbers that, uh, at the moment, I find uh, particularly 
uh, illuminating. Um, in the 12th five-year plan, we're roughly in the middle of the 12th five-year plan now, <coughs> there were seven key industries designated for moving from around 3% of the economy to about 15% of the economy during the decade of the 12th and 13th five-year plans. I won't list them all, but they're um, infotech, biotech, new materials, energy efficiency, uh, clean tech, and so on. Those are the seven industries uh, designated to move from 3% to 15% of the Chinese economy over a period of 10 years. And, of course, Chinese economy at least doubles over 10 years. If you take 15% of roughly where the Chinese economy might be in 2020 or 2021, you've probably got at least $2 trillion in flow of output. With a capital output ratio of, a, say, modest four, you've got $8 trillion or so of capital to be built up. You've got, over that period, something like half a trillion, a trillion dollars a year of investment in these key industries. And remember what they were, infotech, biotech, new materials, you know, high-end manufacturing, clean tech, and so on. These are the things that the rich world thinks it's good at. Well, maybe the rich world is good at those things, but it's got real competition. And it's not the case that this is a country of low-cost manufacturing anymore. That was, that's long gone. I mean, clearly it's, it is also of low-cost manufacturing, but it's so many other things. And Jumin uh, has a wonderful story to tell. I've seen the bit about how the world is changing. He's got wonderful pictures of how the world is changing and, and how its integration, its interrelationships are changing, which I've not seen uh, from anybody else. And you've got a treat. You, uh, you're going to see some of that. But he's got also a story to tell about the Asian financial markets in this context. It's not true that the savings is generated in East Asia and organized and recycled by the rich countries. Maybe that was the case through the financial institutions of those countries. But just as China's going into these uh, much uh, more sophisticated, difficult, complicated, highly skilled scientific areas that I described, it's also going into many other ways, many other parts of um, what we call the service sector, including finance. So understanding how that world is changing, understanding how China is thinking about how the world is changing, shaping how the world is changing, is of fundamental importance. And there is nobody, nobody uh, better situated, nobody who's better, who's thought more deeply about these issues than my uh, very good friend, my very, very good friend, uh, Min. So, Min, welcome to the LSE. It's a treat for us to have you. There's one thing I have to explain which is deeply embarrassing to myself, is that the government in its wisdom scheduled the energy bill for discussion in the House of Lords uh, this afternoon, which means I, I have to slip out. Um, it's my loss, but uh, I should also apologize that I will have to slip out to go and speak in that, in that debate. But um, uh, we celebrate having you here, Min, and it's a great pleasure, and uh, you've got a treat in store. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much, Nick, for the very kind words of uh, introduction. And, uh, and also thanks, uh, uh, Mr. Cohen, for the warm welcome and uh, for the invitation. It's a great honor for me to be here to 
in LSC and give a talk to this very distinguished audience. You know, it's, it's not easy to go back to university, particularly with a very, you know, and renowned, well-known university like LSC. You also feel you are going to defend your dissertation again. And uh, <laughs> the professors sitting downstairs, uh, you know, picking all the mistakes you have been making. And uh, I hope at the end I will be able to get something like a B minus. Nah. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's not a C plus. I, I guess and uh, the LSE people are kind enough and, uh, to let me jump a little bit more than C plus level. Um, but uh, thanks for the invitation again. It's a great, great honor to be here. Um, I'm going to talk about the future for Asia financial market and in a changing world. So it, it is really uh, two part. So I will talk about a changing world, how world change. Then the second part, how a changing Asia financial market and how the two things fit to each other. Then we try to see what the challenges and how do we um, the facing those challenges to move forward. So they will have a three portions. So I will try to talk roughly uh, to 30 to 40 minutes and leave roughly 30 minutes for Q&A. So I'm so happy director sitting here. So if I have any tough questions, I pass it to you since <laughs> <laughs> you are here. And I know you are renowned scholars. So the first part is the changing world. Um, the world is changing. We uh, did a study, tried to see you know, after 30 years of globalization, so how wars change? So what is the war today? And I will say the world is really changes from roughly six different uh, uh, spectrums. The first is we see the global map is changing, and the global structures also change. We, we, we found a new structure we call the cluster structures. It's very different from the way we thought we see before. And the obvious the key issues are hyperconnectivities, which make the world so interconnected to each other. And uh, then, because we're so linked to each other, spillover becomes the big issue. So nobody can escape from the spillover impact. And the meanwhile, with the shifting global gravity, which is gross gravity, move away from the advanced economy to the emerging market, it's a pivotal issue today. And the deleveraging and have a profound impact on today's growth as well. I would say those are a few key trends I would like to see how the world changes uh, in the first part. So the first part, the changing world. So let's start with the map, because it will tell us how the world changes. You will see this is the map we see every day. You know, it's defined by geographic areas. Right? This is a map very normal, because if countries have big areas, there's a big, big uh, position in the map. Now, what we try to see, if we reposition the countries, we resize countries really by the economic strength, for example, by GDP, how the map will change. It's very interesting, the map does change. So let's see if we reposition the map by GDPs. You will see, particularly if you see the Russians here, it's a huge, you will see the Russians become very small. And the U.S. is the biggest number one income. China is the biggest number two. Japan is the biggest number three, right? This is a global GDP map. It's very different from, you know, sort of a common sense we had, so-called global geographic maps. But this is a real map. The further we want to see if we resize the 
the countries by trade, OMAP will further change. Indeed, the map changes further. If you're looking for the Europe center here, you will see the Europe become very, very big. The United States become relatively smaller. China becomes smaller because there's a lot of trade going on, particularly intra-trade or inter-trade. It depends on how do you define Europe. Uh, so trade relationship is a huge, it's this big trade zone, which I will talk later why uh, we get into very slow growth today because the trade is really weakening in this area. Now, further, it's also very interesting. We want to see what is the financial map. What we want to see is we want to see if we define the country by cross-border financial transaction. Let me re-emphasize again. It's a cross-border financial transaction. It's not a financial asset sitting in the, the country because if you, the, the asset don't move across board, have zero global impact because we want to see the global impact. So if you want to see how the cross-border financial assets will redefine the map, you will see the map will really change again. This time, see the China. China's here. By cross-border financial transaction, China become big or small? Yes. That's a very brave voice. <laughs> Indeed, China become very small. Much smaller than you thought, you see? China is so small, and Europe become huge, which is good news, which also is bad news, which is a part of the reason we have a financial crisis today. Now, anyone want to guess what is this control area? Director will offer one million pounds for the right answer. <laughs> Luxembourg. Can you imagine such a small country like Luxembourg has a such a big areas in the global financial map? Anyone want to get what is this area? It's a two million pounds questions. <laughs> yes. It is a Hong Kong. Just imagine, just imagine how small is China here, how big is Hong Kong here. <laughs> just imagine. It's completely changed the, the image, the concept, the way we see the whole world, but this is the real world I call economic world. This map represents job, represent activity, economic activity, represent the trade activity that represents the financial activity as well. Indeed, the world really changed, reflect in the map. Further, it's a little statistics I'm going to quickly move further. It's not only change the map, but change the way it link to each other. I think it's also a fundamental change. Go back to the map here again. We see all the countries sitting nicely in their old position before, but they're changing their position after globalizations. You will see it's a very interesting, the first issue, you will see the war today, the big cluster today is advanced economy. They're close, linked to each other. They share so many uh, economic and financial activities. And most important thing is they share a lot of policy cycles, they share the business cycle. These are the most important things. So they move together. 
But you will see advanced economies always move together because they are advanced economies. They share a lot of things. They have commonalities. That's not the case. I'll explain to you in a minute. The second group today is what I call the Pan-Asia Vertical Integrated Supply Chain, which is really expanding and expanding. You may not believe, for example, Brazil, Chile, today belong to the Asia economically and financially. And the third group I come back to this issue is energy group. They're in very different areas in Nigeria, Kazakhstan, Kuwait, Saudi, and Russia here. But they share the same nature, features, the share the policy, share the business cycle. They become the one group. So the whole world today becomes three huge clusters. It's very different from the concept we had the first war, second, the third war. It's a very different concept we had, the advanced economy emerging market. This is very much defined by their interconnectedness. The what happened in the past 20 years or 25 years is the advanced economy become ever closer. Take the US as a case. Before, US economy is not closely with the European economy at all. Because the US economy, the United States, is very much linked with the northern or southern Latin Americans and a and, and little bit of Asia. But what happens after globalization, actually the US today is much more close to Europe, become part of its core, its whole thing. But meanwhile, it's a pan-Asian vertical supply chain is expanding, it becomes more and more and the, the powerful. They bring all the sort of southern Latin American countries into the Asia group. So what happened in the Western Hemisphere is any countries north to the Panama Canal today still more close linked with the United States. But any countries south to the Panama Canal today all move to Asia. Chile, Peru, Brazil, and uh, you know, all those countries, big countries, and the century, and uh, all these regions move to become the part of the Asia vertical supply chain zone. Then the, 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 the energy group. It's a very different concept, a very different picture, very different structures we ever observed before. Now, I tried to, to explain why the advanced economy not necessarily always groups themselves together. This is Europe. Since we are in Europe, we've got to have something for Europe. This is a method for Europe. It's very interesting you see the relationship between among the countries before the euro and after the euro is quite different. This is the relationship for European countries before the euro, 84 to 99. At that time, Europe was still very loose sort of linked to each other. There was two centers. The south center is France and Italy. Who is the northern center? Okay, there's no two million pounds, so no answer. Saving a lot of money here. <laughs> the northern tent is the UK. We are in London, are we? It's the UK, actually, is the northern center. Greece, by the way, is an outline. You will see that. But what happened is, is the Europe bring all the country economically and financially together. 
after 15 years euro, they all move together, become one core and one cluster, who is the center? Germany. Euro completely changed the Euro interconnectedness, changed economic and financial linkage between among those countries as well. More than that, oh, by the way, Greece is also outlier here. <laughs> now, the distance means the relationship. This is a real one. It's not just a painting. You, know, you saw that you, you paint a tiger, you paint a dragon you know, here and there. No, in other case, the distance means because all this is data uh, process. So further, what we found is more interesting is not that you change the global uh, group structure, but also change the structure. So what we found what I call the cluster structure. The cluster structures, the, all the country linked today is a, a small cluster here. There's a one country we are called gatekeeper. The gatekeeper will bring the, the small cluster to the media and the big cluster. And the big cluster gatekeeper will bring them in to the core. So it is not the relationships. Everyone goes to London. And all the money have a direct linkage like to New York, to London, or to whatever. No. The economic activity will assemble in the region, in the local, with the small clusters, the small groups, and the gatekeeper will bring them, move them in at the end, move them to the core. So here's the core. This is a completely new structure we never ever observed before. So this is the trade clusters. This is a trade cluster between Asia and Europe. You will see here is a big European area. So here, here's the Asia. You get the core is here is China, it's the US, it's the UK, German, and it's France here. But the most interesting was the US is here. You say what's what's going on for American being the trade the relation between the Europe and, and Asia? Geographically, US has nothing to do with the trade between two areas, but US becomes such a big powerful economy and a financial center in the whole world. And the US is the core. So this is the relationship is not defined by ge geographic reasons. It's really defined by economic and financial interconnectedness. So the core is here. And actually, it's China bring all this regional trade uh, flows to the core and through all those countries, these countries bring them to the core that meet in the core. And the U.S. is part of the core. And this is a global machinery clusters. This is a big areas. You will see this is very much from Europe. This is, uh, I'm sorry, you may not be able to see that. But that was not my fault. You should have a much bigger screen. <laughs> With all the millions we saved. <laughs> Next time. That's very good. So and, uh, if you had a 10 times big screens, I'll show you every sports, every country on this map, which is because it's very interesting. And, uh, so, so you will see, this is Europe in this area. This is a Latin American in this area, and Asia in this area. So all these core countries bring those areas into the core. The, class, the, the gatekeeper bring to the core, core bring to the core. The center is really is here in China. You will see the China, US, German, France, and the UK is also here. 
So you will see the cores here bring them together. We did the, 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 the analysis by every year periods. You will see the areas for those cores actually overlapping to each other and this core getting closer and closer every five years. That's exactly the process of a globalization. And I try to bring the trade and the financial together. It's a complete mess. I cannot, even I myself cannot read it. So I'm waiting for the next time when I have a 10 times bigger screens. But that's a simple. I try to use it as a, it's a real case to, to sort of and explain what is the cluster, what is the core. You will see in these areas, there's a six small clusters. But the gatekeeper is Italy and Austria. So you will see Italy and Austria, for this way, they will be the gatekeeper for Greece, for Bulgaria, for Romania, and here for Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and the Czech. So the first question, uh, for the field, so they're, they're different small clusters, because they have a different interconnections, and they, they form small groups, they bring to the gatekeeper, and it, it was Italy and Austria bring to the core, to this, to this core, and bring it into the center. So you may say, why Austria? We found because the Austria-Hungarian emperor. You know, it's very interesting what we realize is a history really mapping into the today's real life. Because all the business link is not defined by today's what we observe the transactions at the superficial level. It's really defined by the networking but economic relationships they built in the past few hundred years. And it remains. That's the real textures we found under the global economic activities. History matters. This is also another interesting and fascinating uh, structures we found. I have to confess, all knowledge to this new structure is still very limited. We still try to exploit to further to see how those structures, how, how, how those uh, clusters work together and form the main force. That's the key issue. And how the, the, the volatility and the jump in in those structures. Because the, the clusters, it's a mapping. It's not a linear. It's a rather than mapping. So the interconnectedness enhances and increases dramatically. But it's not a linear one-on-one relationship. It's really a group relationship. It's a mapping. It's multiple relationships. So obviously, interconnectedness is really increasing strongly. The main channel, of course, is the financial channel. This is the, the global uh, external financial asset and liquidities. We'll see in roughly a 30 years horizon increase from 70% of global GDP to 350, which is okay. But the most interesting thing here you will see in the three major financial markets, which is the bonds market and the currency market and the equity market, the co-efficiency, co-movements, in 10 years of horizon really increased roughly from 45 to 55%, move into the 70 to 80. And the most important thing, the co-movement coefficient is not existing within the same product market, but also across the market, which were never observed before. For example, I mean, statistically or, or by whatever the market experience, you will say the bonds market market and the equity market always go the opposite way. No, it's not. 
It was it's very interesting, particularly during the 2008 crisis time, the coefficient increased dramatically because of contagion effect. But the bonds market did not follow because the dollar was the safe haven. All the money you run into the U.S. market, so have a very different behave. If you think about the global financial market, they have a 70 to 80 percent of co-movements, co-efficiency. Why bother to invest in the different place? How do you manage your portfolio today? It's also very interesting. We try to see this is the five major equity market across five continents. You will see co-movement coefficients really change. Look, if we're looking for the green lines from Latin American equity market, emerging Asia equity market, which started roughly 42% coupons 10 years later, today, is 81%. You see how calm? The Latin American equity market and emerging Asia equity market is two completely different cultures, completely different market. People have a different idea for investments, different money, but they have 81% coupons. That means they, have, they share almost the same identical, almost, Investments behave. Although Asian always saving, but the American enjoy dancing and drinking. <laughs> How come? Because Latin American physically, because they become the major part of Asia vertical supply chain, when the real economy move into the Asia financial sector follows. You can never ever imagine that happened before. And uh, let me go quick to that. So this interconnectedness has really become the fundamental feature of the whole world, which naturally lead to the consequence of the spillover. Spillover becomes such a big issue today. What we try to do, we try to understand what the five major economies today, Euro, US, China, Japan, the UK, what is their spillover impact to the outside world? You will see we try to define them by two groups. One is the macro shock, which is like a surprise shock, demand shock, monetary policy, fiscal policy. It's a real shock. One is the financial shock, which is more through the financial channels. You will see the real shock spillover effect is very much limited because you have to through impact on the real GDP movements, which is not easy. But the financial shock is so easy to, 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 to move out. And you can see if the U.S. have 1% of financial uh, the shocks, will roughly have uh, more than 50% uh, the impact on the outside of the whole world. You know. And the further, we try to decompose, try to see what the U, if the U.S. have a spillover impact, so how this impact to the outside. The blue bar is the real economy. We'll see the U.S. will have a spillover majorly. Um, this, this is Canada. This is Mexico. Actually, this is Saudi. It's very interesting. U.S. have a major impact, spillover impact on Saudi, China. You know, it's, it's really out of our imagination. You know, it's a U.S. spillover impact, the real macro shock. I mean, you can understand Canada, you can understand Mexico, but it's hard to believe Saudi and China. But if it's a financial impact, you will see the level increase dramatically, immediately over 50%. 
So the financial impacts really is the major uh, spillover on the we had today, and from the main economies and also from the countries to each other as well. So what we try to see, if we try, since we talk about spillover, so what we try to see, how much external shock will impact on domestic. GDP growth. So real in these pictures, we try to measure how much external impact on the domestic GDP growth variation. Let me reset on domestic GDP growth variation. So it is D-trends. It's not external shock on GDP growth. It's on GDP growth variation. So it's a D-trends. It's very interesting. Let's start with China. China is a big and quite open economy. Before the crisis, just five years ago, the external shock played roughly 35% role to domestic GDP variations. After crisis, 70%. So China, domestic GDP variation actually had an impact or directly driven 70% today from external shocks. But that's not the whole story, because see, China is a developing country. It's big, but still relatively small. But let's see what happened in the United States. In the U.S., before the crisis, the U.S. are such a big economist, the external shock only played 15% growth in domestic GDP growth variation. Only 50%, relatively small. It's the lowest one, smallest one, with all the six big groups. We talk about that. After crisis... 60%. Can you imagine? Just imagine. A huge economy like the United States will be so vulnerable to external shocks, and external shock will impact on U.S. GDP growth variation up to 60%. Whoever. Any country today can have independent macro policy. Anyone in the world today can manage the domestic economic activities without, without take the consideration of international external shocks. We also have UK and a few other cases. I think this is really shocking findings for ourselves, for myself as well. The world is really linked to each other, particularly its a spillover impact is huge. The meanwhile, shifting global growth gravity also and, uh, and happening. It's, it's very interesting. GDP growth is between advanced economy, advanced economy, emerging market, low-income country. It's really picked up 2003. It's really... Before 2003, the growth is more or less the same. It was after 2002 to 2003, you will see the emerging market low-income country growth is really picked up, and, the, and, and advanced economic growth is really on downside. The gap is roughly about a 3 percentage GDP on the annual base. When it continues for more than 10 years, it changes global economic structures. This year is the first time, the first time the emerging market GDP share, internal global GDP share, will be a little bit more than over 
That's a pivotal change. Because you move over 50%, you have the market force. But before, when emerging market low income countries have a strong growth, but they're small, so impact to the whole world is still very much a limit. But when you're over 50, but still PPP measure, I have to say, on the, so it really become the whole demand force. So you will see in, 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 in those days, we forecast it even in the five years later, the emerging, this is a blue bars, it's advancing economy contribution to the global GDP growth rate. So roughly after crisis reduced to, it's a re- relatively small, like a, a quarter, but the emerging low income country could contribute to roughly two quarters of global GDP growth rates. But that's not the story. The really issues is happened the contribution to the global growth of consumption. So you will see, and the more and more before the crisis, advanced economy contributed almost 80% of global consumption growth. But now, they become half and half. You know, the power from aggregate demands. This is aggregate demands. And also happened on the trade side as well. That's changed the whole global demand equation and demand structure. What happened is, when the emerging market low-income countries have a global PPP weighted GDP over 50%, there's 1 billion people living in the advanced economy. There are 6 billion people living in the emerging market. This is 6 billion people has more income day by day. They consume more because they're strong growth. They change their consumption pattern instantly. They change the whole global demand equation. They change the whole global demand structure as well. They become the major drive force for the global economic structure change. I'm not talking about growth. I'm talking about structure change. And meanwhile, the another big, big trend inference over today is really the deleveraging, which have a profound impact on the growth. You will see the debt level in the advanced economy is way high. This is the debt level before the crisis, but after crisis, you will see many countries, particularly Japan, obviously, reached 250 now today, and the increase of debt. Debt level is one high, even high than cancer rises and the level 90%, and even more than 60% the previous standards. But in the emerging market, still relatively lower. Uh, it's the same thing, just say the fiscal situation is very much divided. Let me go through quickly. And not only the government debts, but also the household debts is very high. You will see the house gas is the, is the US household debts actually is moving on downsize. And the, this is the UK debts actually in terms of uh, uh, personal income roughly from 170 drop to today, 155 quite, quite, quite drop. In Japan and in, in the Europe, it doesn't change very much. Japan, Europe actually is an increase. So household debts still way high. If you have a household debts more than 100% of your income, you have to say you have too much debt. More than that. The corporate debt is also very high. Compared with two, year 2000 and 2010, you will see corporate debts in the Euro, European countries, in many countries, way, it's way high. When you have a high household debt, high corporate debt, obviously, you end up with a very high banking sector debt. So the leverage ratio in the banking sector is way high. In the Europe, roughly from 36 times, dropped to roughly today, still 25 times. That's implied 4% of capital. 
to the non-weighted risk total assets. And the United States dropped roughly 12, which better than mid 8%. So that is way hard. We have a high government debt, we have high household debt, we have a high corporate debt, and the banking sector is over-leveraged, of course. That's a consequence for that. We bother too much. Now here's the consequence. We did a historical studies take 135 years from 1875, take a roughly 43 and uh, the, the death situations. We try to see if the country have a public death over 100%, how long and whether they were able to bring them down. We found it's not easy. We found it's only if there's a war situations, for example, in, in the 1930s war situations, first war, second war, you, you, you borrow money, finance the war, after war, the, 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 the growth picked up, you will be able to bring them down. Otherwise, it's a very difficult. This is Israel war. It's another war situation. In all the way, except the one in UK and the one in Canada, will be able to bring down for all these countries of when you're over 100%, it probably will stay in that level. That's the tough issue. What does that mean? That means you have a high debt, you will suppress your growth. Because it changes the whole market function, market behave. And this is also, we will see that we started with 100 here, we picked a few major ones. The only way we will be able to below is this is the United States, this is the World War II, this is a Canadian one, 1995, we'll be able to bring down. Everyone, Italy, Belgium, it's the UK, Japan, it's all after so many uh, 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 quarters, for years, they're still going up now. And just the same, the idea, the thought I talked, I'm not going to go through this one. Now, then come to the impact on the growth. When you have deaths, you have to deleverage. Right? You borrow too much, it's non sustainable. When it goes through the deleverage, the government have no money to spend, so it's reduced aggregate demand. The corporate don't invest, which reduces the aggregate demand. The household save more, reduce consumption, which reduces aggregate demand. That's exactly the situation we are today. We don't have enough aggregate demand, so we have a weak economic growth. There are a few cases before, it's also very, it's, this is the case in Japan. What you see is Japan's corporate debt is way high in the 90s. It's like a 300, close to 350 uh, of GDP. So corporate sector understands that this is non-sustainable. They dropped that low, low to, to, to 200, still way high. But obviously, then they cut aggregate demand. The growth become very weak, right? So growth drops. So government, what government tried to do, the government issued the government debt to support aggregate demand. So the government debt increased dramatically from roughly 80% to 230% in 30 years horizon. What happens on GDP is very volatile at all. So the public debt is substituted for the private debt. It doesn't work. Let me go through this quickly. 
There's a UK case. It's also very interesting. It's the World War One. You will see when because of the war, the deaths increased dramatically, and uh, but the UK obviously take the very authoritative program, try to bring the deaths down, bring the budget to the surplus, ring quickly go to surplus from negative 22 percent GDP to about two percent and the GDP surplus. That's fine, but the GDP would happen drop dramatically, and because lack of aggregate demand. So what happens? The government try to stimulate the economy by issuing the public debt to support. So the government debt actually increased dramatically from 40 to 200, then volatile. Then the GDP go back, but also very volatile. So you will see deleveraging. The point I will try to say is not an easy one. Yeah, I have another American case. This is American case. This is this time crisis. You will see recovers much much weaker than any crisis we had before. Because of deleverage, that's the real situation we are today. Yes, you can borrow, but you have to pay back. Nothing's for free. When you pay back, you have to cut your expense, then cut your aggregate demand. So then, weaken the economy. So I think those are the situation we are facing. Today, but finally, and also another important structure change that also happening today is a big global shifting and reshifting. What happened before the crisis is in 1990s in advanced economy, the total consumption into the GDP is a big C, right? In the LSE, you have a econ 101. It's a big C. Big C is a 76.3 percent. In 20 years horizon, it's increased five percentage point to 81.5. Fantastic! Everybody consume more. But you know, everything have to add up to 100. If a big C increase, what I have to drop? Big I. Exactly, it's happened. The investment drop from 23.7 percent dropped 18.8 percent, dropped exactly five percent. You know, it is a miracle, is it? But it's more than that. It's more than that. What happened is not only happened in the advanced economy, but also mirrored by the emerging market. What happens in the advanced economy? The total consumption increased five percent of GDP in the emerging market. The total the total consumption dropped six percent, and the investments increased five percent. It's a beautiful world, is it? Everything have to balance it to each other. So what happened is, when advanced economy spend more, the consumption increases five percent of GDP. Emerging and low income countries see the opportunity. They really reduce their consumption. They put more money into the investments, produce things for the advanced economy, which very much the story for great, great moderation. Now the crisis. The first question is whether this 81.5 percent consumption is sustainable. The answer is not. But whether they will go back, the answer is not all clear, because you get used to your lifestyle. It's very difficult to ask you to cut back. And meanwhile, if you cut back, you have to have your investments pick up. To meet aggregate demand, but if they're changing in advanced economy, 
the emerging market, meanwhile, have to increase their consumption and cut their investments as well. Because the globalization, we're living in such interconnected world. One path change, the other path have to follow. So in the past 20 years, we see the great shifting on the consumption side in the, in, in the advanced economy, on the production side in the emerging market. Now, in the next 20 years, we probably will see a completely reverse shifting go back again. That will be a much, much tougher process. So adding them together, I would say, we, after 30 years, we have the changing global map. We have the new structure we call a cluster. Everyone's happily interconnected. Speed will become ever important issues, shifting global gravity, changing the global dynamics, and the deleveraging and the growth. And become the new situation we're facing today. And the shifting and the reshifting become a big thing we're going to experience in the next 20 years. So, welcome to this very new dynamic, a very challenging also very exciting new world. Now my province, I only finished the first half of my presentation. <laughs> so I used all my time. So what can I do? Can I ask for another 10 or 12 I think minutes? you should take another few minutes and tell us about Asian financial markets. Okay, thank you. You're very kind. <laughs> well, I'm very interested. So let me go quickly say a few things about the Asia financial sector and I try to... Uh, to stop, and um, you know, I have to confess. Anytime we talk about changing water, I myself become so excited. I just cannot speed up. <laughs> poor, poor. Um, also, the six things: the macro situation trends, the financial market interconnectedness, capital flow, Hong Kong, and the Singapore as a financial center, and the futures. That take me another forty minutes. <laughs> Well, I think it's a sort of a bargaining <laughs> strategy. <Yeah. you> know? <laughs> Let me skip to complete the macro issues. I think you can see Asia is pretty strong, healthy, and uh, strong growth, and also low debts. And they roll in terms of global trade and capital flow, and debt level is way low. So let's speak, skip the whole thing. Let me go through to the financial situation. This is the global financial structure now. It's very interesting, we'll see in 2000, the world of total financial assets, roughly 468% of global GDP. Today, it's 366, the drop is still big. Asia, emerging Asia, except Japan, Australia, New Zealand, roughly increased from 216% GDP to 293. So Asia financial sector is expanding. But if you're looking for the structure, you will see in Asia, mostly it's a banking sector, account of 57% of the whole financial sector. And equity market is 25%. The bonds market is relatively small. Asia don't borrow money. That's the issue. If I have time, I'll come back to this. So it's very interesting. You will see it's very different from the U.S. You will see, particularly if you're with Europe, you know, the bonds market, banking is big, the bonds market also uh, also very big, the capital market is small. So basically, Asia have a big banking sector, big
big equity market and a small bonds market is growing. In terms of Asia's financial sector in the global pictures, that's the Asia shares in the whole world, you will see the Asia account the global 2011 shares 19.4%. It's emerging Asia. But they account roughly 16% of the global financial assets. So even in the past 20 years, the Asian financial sector grow, expanded dramatically. They still underrepresent in terms of the GDP shares. But it's also interesting if you see the, the different uh, 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 structure issues. You will see in the banking sector here, roughly Asia have a 20% of the whole banking sector at the, at the global banking market. It's much bigger than U.S. And uh, we have China's here. China have a 13% of global banking assets, which almost equivalent to the United States. It's hard to imagine today China and the U.S. have the same size of a banking sector in terms of assets. In, in terms of the stock market, the Asia is still the here 21%. It's uh, much bigger than the Europe. And, uh, but the bonds market still relatively small. It's only 6.9% total debts in terms of 19% is market. So you will see in terms of the, the Asia in the global uh, 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 situations, the still financial sector grows strongly, but still relatively small. I'm going to skip that one. And, uh, and the market grows strongly. This is the equity market. You, t- you, you see the RPO, you see the, in the Asia Pacific, in the last year, RPO uh, listings number is bigger than in the American area now, which is also very much impressive. And the liquidity also become very strong. It used to be the issue for the Asia uh, equity market because the liquidity is so low, but not today anymore. Yeah, let me go through the liquidity issue again. But this is an interesting chart. This is a return in the Asia equity market. You see the volatility is much bigger in Asia than in the other market in the world. So market is much, much more volatile. But you will say, why the market is so volatile in Asia? Because the noise trading in Asia is much bigger compared with G7 Asia. You see, in Asia, the noise trading, that means speculative trading, is much, much higher and stronger than in terms of the world average. So that's bring the the return in Asia is much, much more volatile than all the other markets as well. So you see, this is a great shared areas, is is return volatilities in Asia. That's a few startup effects that come to this noise trading is quite big. But the Asian market also is very uh, uh, interconnected with the global financial centers. You will see on the, the beta, we call the financial beta in the Asia area, it's quite high. It's very strong, particularly during the crisis. It's almost 100%, almost 100%. It's over more jump than 100% and uh, associated with the global volatilities. So Asia market is very much a part of the global market. The financial beta with this study is more like 80%. So Asia financial market movements is roughly 80% along with the global movements. So it's very part of 
the global uh, financial market at all, and we decompose the, the financial beta, so the co-movements, you will see the major from the f global financial shocks and a little bit from real economic impacts. Basically, through the financial shock, Asia is really linked with the whole world. And also, in terms of interconnectedness, this is the consolidated claim of international banks. You will see the claim to Asia today, international financial institutes, almost equivalent to the claim to the Europe now. So Asia is not small at all in terms of banking sector overall uh, uh, exposures to the region. The foreign hold and local sovereign bonds also increased. Let me go through quickly this one. Now, capital flow is also a very interesting story in Asia as well. On one hand, you will see capital flow is very much volatile. In the past 24 months, the capital flow like goes through the four S, you know, down, up, down, up, and down, up. You know, we're still on the upside, but not start on downside now. And which is very much coincide with the global VIX, the global risk. It is very interesting to see that the capital flow today not necessarily move along with the local macro situation, but rather with the global risk index. So it is the local, not the local issue, but the global issue. But that's not the story. The capital flow story really is in the next two charts because people pay attention to Asia. You see, the capital flow in Asia is roughly percentage of whole world, roughly account to 17, 2000, and the global capital flow today account to roughly 40, a little bit of 42 percent, and. Uh, and for whole Asia, if we include Japan, Australia, and New Zealand, Asia absorbs roughly 35% of global capital flow. So it's huge. It's really huge. But there's a capital flow, but also there's a capital outflow. And uh, the capital outflow also become, become quite a big. But this is in terms of GDP. Let me show you another table. This table shows the Asia, roughly in the past 10 years, absorbed FDI is roughly, including emerging Asia, is $1,968 trillion. But Asia export $4 trillion capital. So in the capital flow front, it's also very interesting for Asia. Asia received a lot of capital, 35% of global capital flow, with a lot of volatilities. Meanwhile, Asia export a huge amount of capital, particularly low-risk capital as well. So this is today's Asian role in the world because Asia has the capital. I think that's a, that's a very important issue. And Hong Kong and Singapore become more and more important to uh, financial center for the region now. You will see um, in terms of the banking credit, I think they move both. This is Hong Kong, red is Hong Kong. I guess don't know why it's red because maybe it's China, and the yellow is Singapore. Um, you will see here in the stock market, Hong Kong moves way higher than Singapore, but in the bonds market, they're more the same. But the interesting thing is the next chart for these two centers. You will see the banking sector is more or less the same 
exposure interconnectedness with the whole world. But in Hong Kong, the equity market is much more closely linked to the international uh, 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 financial institutes, not, the, not the Singapore. But in Singapore, the bonds market is much more close associated with the world bonds market, but not equity market. I think that's, uh, that's uh, very interesting. And you will see Singapore is a big of international bonds issuers, even bigger than the United States today. This is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about international issuer. It's not domestic, because domestically, obviously, the United States is, uh, itself is the largest one at all. Yeah. So bring these two financial centers together, you will see it's very interesting. Hong Kong is very much the window for China, and I think I'll put more spend out to the, the South Asia and the East Asia region as well. And Hong Kong is m- m- more on the capital market, equity market, and Singapore is more on the bonds market. And uh, you can see clear different features, and you see these two centers, in fact, compromise to each other in a very interesting way. Looking for the futures, and uh, we see in the past 10 years, the growth, the financial sector growth is very strong. In China, for example, the GDP growth is 503%. The financial sector growth is 708%. It's very strong, which is good news, which also could be bad news. We've got to be very careful. If you have a very strong financial sector growth, in Asia, 356% GDP growth, but 482% of financial sector growth. So you will see Asia have a very strong uh, growth in financial sector, and the uh, basis on uh, already very strong GDP growth already, yeah. And if you're looking for the whole world, you will see the, the whole world of financial growth in the past 10 years is roughly 170. So you compare these two numbers, you will see the financial growth in the region is very strong. And the derivative market and the shadow banking also increased dramatically, particularly in China. And uh, the banking sector also will grow. So let me quickly go through those starlight factor and uh, uh, bring this the very uh, basic issues in Asia financial sector. What we see is the Asia financial market grows strongly. Um, but compared with the whole world, it's still relatively small. Uh, with a very interesting own features, which is a strong in banking sector in equity market, but weak on bonds market, which is important because bonds is long-term financing instruments, which provide stability in financial market at all. And the uh, Asian financial market part of a global financial system already, but much, much more volatile because external shock and because internal the speculative activity as well as the northern trading as well. And the capital flow also interesting. Asia re- received a lot of very volatile capital flow from the whole world, 35% of the total, but exports tremendous amount of capital. And there's two-way flows also. And Hong Kong and Singapore more and more become the two major financial centers for the region as well, but they do different in the sense one's more on equity one is more on the bonds side as well. Um, we're looking for the future that will grow, but uh, there are a few challenges also I would like to mention. Uh, it can be interesting. 
There are few things, I think, for the, for the regional financial sectors. The first challenge for the region is the, the financial sector have to work in and serve for the real economy. So the financial sector have to serve the changing growth model, have to serve the infrastructure need, have to serve the aging, the demographic change, and have to serve the manufacturing supply chains, and also have support a country in the region moving from low to middle income and from middle to advanced economy as well. I think this, those are one, two, three, four, five major challenges the Asian financial sector is facing today to support the regional growth and the regional economic transformation. Let me just uh, illustrate this a little further, which is not easy. For example, this is the chart for the consumption and the investments. It's the consumption here. If you go more, you have a more private consumption. If you go high, you have more investments. China is here. So if you want to China to have a more balanced growth model, where China should move? Yes, go down that way. China should go down that way. But what happened, let me see, this is 2007. Between 2007, if you're looking for the China, and 2011, actually China moved into the wrong direction. That means China have less consumption in four years horizon and more investments. And all the literature experience tell us the financial sector plays a pivotal role to change the growth model. We observe this in Japan, in South Korea, and in few countries in Asia as well. And infrastructure need is another big issue in Asia. And uh, the electricity need is a huge, it's right, like a little bit less than half trillion. Telecom and transportation, add them together, it's roughly it's $8 trillion need for infrastructure, need the financial sector to support. And the most important issue is aging is a big challenge for the region. We did all the studies. We tried to see when you're getting old, what happened on the financial sector. What we realized, when you become old, the curve moves, because the dependency ratio drops, you need more saving, which is against the reality, because again, the reality is when you're getting old, you dissave, right? You spend your saving. What does that mean? That means you need to save more today. You need a stronger insurance company. But all the Asia today is here. The insurance premium, insurance sector is very small. Australia, Singapore, Korea is here, and Hong Kong, Japan, and it's here. And the whole region should move into that direction when the aging happens. The aging challenges need the financial sector to support, to help, to maintain the sustainable of the people's life, not in terms of length of life, but also the quality of the life. So those are the real challenges I think that Asia is facing. But obviously, they're facing a few other things, you know, enhancing the market resilience, the regulatory and the supervisions, enhance the cross-management, and macro potential policy as well. And also, there's a huge room for the, the, the regional integrations. There's a huge room for 
dealing with the global market, a many external shock, and so plus excess savings outside Asia, given Asia's major saving place for the whole world. So if you're looking for the challenge today, I think the Asia whole financial sector will say the financial sector has been grown strongly and in its own way. And banking sector is very big. And equity market is big. Bonds market, long-term financing is still weak. On the, but meanwhile, derivatives and also the, the share of banking increase and the strong growth also imply a, a certain degree of a risk for the whole financial sectors. Capital flow is a particular interest issue. A lot of capital inflow volatiles, a lot, a lot of capital outflow, whether the further reform will change its pattern will have a huge global impact as well. When Asia sort of facing the whole world, the financial sector have to support the real economic growth in the whole world. That means changing the growth model, avoid the middle income trap, dealing with aging uh, problems, and support infrastructures. Meanwhile, manage external shock, and also make sure more and more integrate to the whole global financial sector as well. So once again, this is a very exciting place. We see the financial sectors growing. We see the whole world we're looking for the Asia market for the future areas to grow. We see more capital move flow. And we see the real challenge for the real side. We see also the real challenge from integrating into the international market as well. So there will be another fascinating, interesting, dynamic, but challenging area for all of us to look into it. So I will stop here. Thank you very much. All right. I hope you'll all agree with my uh, judgment on this. We got not one, but two fascinating talks from uh, men. And now we have about nine minutes. So that's why you should invite me for another lunch. I think indeed. <laughs> we owe you more. But now, let's go to the back there, the uh, lady and then the gentleman on the back on this side, and then I'll come back to the other side. Um, thank you. My name is Zhang Hong. I'm a reporter from China Social Media. So, Mr. Zhu, um, my first question would be, you're talking about the changing world, and yesterday we heard the news about um, there is going to launch the uh, transatlantic um, trade and investment partnership between EU and US. How is that going to impact the, whole, uh, the world economy? And my second question concerns the internationalization of RMB. How is that going to change the Asian financial market as well as the world financial market? Thank you. Well, there's two questions probably need another half an hour. No, uh, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm afraid I cannot do it in, in half minutes either. So let's take three minutes. Um, the first issue is uh, transatlantic uh, trade agreements between the uh, 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 U.S. and the Europe. Uh, uh, it can be a very important way and will have another global in- impact on the global uh, trade as well. And, uh, what, I, what we saw is the U.S. today is much more close to the Europe than today, but more on the financial side. Yeah. And there's a lot of room for trade for both sides to work out to negotiate the new trade deal to promote trade in those areas. And promoting trade between the Europe and the U.S. also could be a good opportunity for the whole world 
Because the whole story is really changing today. When we talk about trade today, it's not one country trade with another country. It's a supply chain. Everyone is a part of the supply chain. So when enhanced trade between the US and the Europe, it can bring a lot of opportunities for the Asia, for the Latin America as well. Because at the end of the day, we're all part of the supply chain. I think this is a, a really fundamental uh, uh, conceptual change for today's trade issues as well. It's very different from any before. It's not a one-on-one country-to-country relationships as well. And you take IPAC, right? I mean, it's a classical case. You can see that. Um, I think uh, that's the issue. The second issue is IMB internationalization. I think it's, it's a good way because uh, when China becomes uh, a stronger economy and uh, the Chinese currency and uh, uh, want and should play important role in international financial sector. So IMB, given the situation, IMB is not convertible capital account is not open to go through the trade settlements, which is classical uh, path. We observe that uh, uh, experience in the other countries before. You know. um, I think that's good. Today, the IMB account roughly uh, more than 10% total China trade, which is very important uh, the mark. When you over 10%, that means you play a really important role now. Um, but if you're looking for the long term, I would say a currency internationalization is not only based on trade. The key issue is you have to have this currency denominated financial assets. You can buy, you can invest, you can trade. So you have to have IMB denominated financial assets. That means you have to have IMB denominated, well-regulated financial market and open to all investors all the foreign, everyone in the world who hold on RMB and can invest in RMB demanded products. That will take a long time. But I think it is a process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your talk, Professor Zhu. My name is uh, uh, Feng Xue Bao. I'm a current management student from RC. And my question is uh, what's the China's agenda for opening the capital account? Because you know, if we compare, we see uh, Hong Kong is more financially bigger than China, quite but if China don't open its uh, capital accounts, it's uh, still you know, the, the size of Chinese financial market. It will be small forever. So, but if China has an agenda to open the uh, capital account, how the Chinese authority to manage the risk associated with uh, the, 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 the inflow of the capital? And the second question is, uh, as China gains a uh, bigger share in the IMF, so what's the China proposal for the reform of the fund? Is, uh, is there any uh, fundamental change of the, like, the IMF the lending or conditionality or something like that? Thank you. Okay, that's uh, another two questions. The first issue is you ask, if China government has a, a plan to open the capital account, so you should ask a Chinese government official. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I was, I have to say, but not, not today. On the, but from, from the founder point of view, um, I would say when China becomes more and more important and becomes the second largest economy and the financial sector grows very strongly and bring the Chinese financial sector into the whole world to make the openness of the capital account is, is, is a very important step. Uh, I think it's good for China, it's good for the whole world. We had a very good communication with Chinese authorities, and we both agree which is the direction to move. Yes, when the capital account opens, you're obviously facing a lot of uh, uh, volatilities, and because the uh, financial sector today is so big, 
and the capital movement so strong, so fast, so quick. And the contagion effect, which is really nobody knows where this comes from, how big the impact could be, is another uh, a big impact in, uh, uh, issues uh, sitting there. So there are risk issues. So that's the reason and China take a very careful step, just one by one, gradually. You know. So currently, China opened the China account. On the capital account, there are roughly 43 items. China opened roughly 30, 31 already. So on the graduate approach, which is also we think is a good approach, because we, we, it's, it's for the whole world, it's also important for China to have a stable financial and the sector and so uh, strong growth. Meanwhile, gradually open its capital account. I think that is also a graduate approach. For the fund, um, after this uh, 14th, uh, the quarter reform, China will become the third largest shareholders uh, of the fund. Um, I wouldn't say it's China will change the fund policy lending procedure. It's not. Because the fund is international institutes very much governance by the governance body and also structured based on the quarter. Quarter is supported by 188 members. So I would say China will have a strong voice. That's very, very true. And will bring more Chinese experience, emerging market experience to the fund, which is very much welcome, appreciated. And so make the, the fund, the, the lending work, policy work, much more fit in today's uh, changing world situation. I think that's the main issue. Yeah. Thank you. Question back here. There's a gentleman with a sweatshirt on. There, yeah. Hi, thank you. Uh, Dennis Shen, student uh, in LSE's Institute of Public Affairs. So in the age of hyper-globalization and hyper-spillover impacts that you paint, to manage these markets, the question is, what do, we, what do we do about it? Do we take some lessons and draw them from the prior Bretton Woods regime in terms of managed exchange rates, capital controls, regulated finance, or should we accept hyper-globalization for what it is and try to improve global financial governance? Thank you. Good, good point. Thank you. You, you, you can be the future uh, I'm of uh, senior economists. And, uh, Get his business card before he leaves. <laughs> <laughs> no, very good point. And the few things. Uh, yes, we're facing huge and tremendous uh, spillover external shocks. And uh, so the, the few things are important. Number one, you need a good macro policy. You need the good macro foundations. And because that's the base for you to manage external shock. I think this is the most important thing. In this crisis, to make it ever clear, if we have, a, for the Asia countries, I, I just go through very quickly, because Asia experienced 1997 Asia financial crisis. So today, the financial uh, situation is much better than 1997, in terms of corporate debt, in terms of government debt, in terms of banking leverage ratios. So Asia will be able to survive and be able to take this opportunity to go further. Well, it's very clear. So have a good macro foundation is number one. Number two, in good time, building the buffer. That means save your money by building certain fiscal space so in difficulty time, you can spend, right? So in London, you always bring your ring coats and umbrellas. So in the ring, you have someone to something to, to, to help you. So building the policy buffer is very important. It's also the most important lessons. What happened in this crisis, after crisis, the low-income countries have very strong growth. So the question is why and how? The major one big issue is because the low-income countries be able to build the fiscal buffers before the crisis. When crisis comes, they will be able to use these fiscal buffers. In fact, 
a lot of uh, 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 develop uh, uh, advanced economy actually uh, not only use up all their buffers, but they borrow too much money. They get themselves into the troubles. The third issue is international cooperation, and international cooperation become ever important today because of the spillover impact. Thank you. Very good question. Last question, the woman in black. Um, thank you very much for an excellent speech. I'm from uh, LLC, um, studying international management. And I have a quick question, because I love their mapping, uh, the challenge, changing mapping very much, and I'm particularly interested in Japan. And uh, since we can see, like, in both trading and financial activities, Japan takes a big role in the world. So, um, now we are facing the depreciation of their um, currency yen, um, in particularly like China as a coal in Asia. Um, what kind of responsibilities and duties to maintain this or to sustain the uh, Asian economy related to losing, the chi losing Japan or even bring the Latin American economy into the coal Asia economy? But um, what kind of things that really China should do to sustain their economy? Thank you. Good, good. That's, that's also a good question. Let, let me start with Japan, with Japanese economic situations. I think you, you raised a very important, important uh, uh, issues. And after 20 years of recessions, we observed the Japanese authorities decide to take decisive actions to bring the economy out of deflation situation, which is good. Yeah. So they have a fiscal policies on the which will provide actually because they have 2.2% uh, uh, supplementary budgetary expenditures, which will support 0.7% GDP growth this year, 0.5% GDP growth next year. So we will see Japan will have quite a good GDP growth rate this year and next year, which is very good. But meanwhile, because you expand your fiscal uh, expenditures, you borrow more money, so add more pressures on the fiscal side. So um, you borrow more money. So Japanese bond uh, total debt increased from 248 end of this year were over 250, which sent a strong signal to the market. So JGB yield increased in the past roughly six weeks, quite a bit. Show the market is really concerned about long-term debt sustainability issues. Um, so I would say the movements is good, but the it's not only fiscal policy, it's not only money monetary. The key issue still is a structural reform. So Japan needs to do structural reform really from inside to, because Japan have an aging problem, have structural issues. Then we'll move the whole economy up because I think a strong uh, Japanese economy is good for Asia, good for Japan, good for the whole world. I think the first issue, but uh, the structural reform is more important, not only on the monetary policy and the fiscal stimulus as well. Now, for the, the rest of the Asia, your second part of the question is also important. I think so far we see the Asian communities take a very good uh, 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 sort of uh, 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 attitude toward the Japanese policy. It's very supportive because they understand after 20 years of recessions and Japan need the decisive actions. They understand a strong Japanese economy is good for Japan and also good for Asia. So they, become, they, are, they are very supportive. But obviously, there is a capital uh, spillover issues. You will see capital move out and uh, before, and in the past few weeks, and the capital market has been very volatile. Um, in that sense, I, I, I would say there's room for, for the region in a better cooperation to make sure a smooth capital flow. I think this is absolutely important. It's good for Japan, good for the region as well.
Okay, I'll make a policy recommendation for the LSE. We must invite uh, Jumin back to speak to us again. This has been terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.